Hello and welcome to OpWall's Field Notes, a podcast created by Operation Wallacea to share stories and insights from our 25 years working in the field. My name is Sophia Wood, OpWall's Country Manager for Ecuador and Director of Friends of Wallacea, and I will be your host for this series. We launched this podcast to shine a light on the world of biodiversity field research and the work of those who dedicate their lives to understanding and protecting our planet. Each month, we have conversations with scientists, community conservationists, and experienced academics about new research, protecting biodiversity, and daily life out in the field. In this episode, I sit down with Toby Farman, Opwal's Systems Manager and Romania Country Manager, to discuss the unique ecosystems of the Transylvanian countryside that have helped protect European wildlife in this region. Toby originally studied biotechnology, but an Opwal trip in 2007 sparked his passion for travel. After graduating, Toby traveled the world for two years, a story he talks about in the episode, with nothing more than a backpack. Rather than settle down on his return, Toby has gone on to manage Opwal projects in Mozambique, South Africa, and now Transylvania. In this episode, Toby will discuss what makes Transylvania in particular so special for wildlife. We talk about how bears, hay meadows, and traditional agriculture fit together within the mosaic of hills and valleys that define the Transylvanian region, as well as what the rest of the world can learn from this very special place. Hi, Toby. Thanks so much for joining us today. No problem at all, Sophia. It's my pleasure. So since we're taping everything from home, where are you based right now? Um, so I'm at home in Lincoln. Um, so I don't know if anybody knows, but uh, Opwall's based in kind of the middle of uh, the Lincolnshire countryside in quite an odd location. But the closest city to the office is Lincoln, which is where I live. So I'm in my home office at the moment. And I presume you've been there for the last year. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, with COVID, it's Groundhog Day. So, yeah, just working from home most days for the most part. Looking forward to getting back into the office, to be honest. Yeah, same here. So you've obviously been working for Opwall for, for several years, but you had quite an interesting you know, career path before that. So how did you first become inspired and decide to become a scientist? So I've been with Opwall for a, a good 10 years now. Um, in fact, it'll be 11 years in September. Um, and it's interesting because despite working for Opal, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a scientist because I definitely would kind of work more on the operations side. Um, and the the science in my background isn't necessarily kind of directly relevant with the work that we do in Opwall. And that's because I kind of had a very roundabout way of getting into Opwall and kind of post degree and kind of doing everything else. But um, I've come a bit of a, become a bit of a jack of all trades at Opwall and with everything, there's a bit of overlap with the science side of things, but um, I'm definitely kind of more operational stuff. But it kind of it, it started back kind of like pre-university. Um, I was originally on a path to start off with computer science. And almost the last minute before I went to university, I decided that I didn't want to sit in front of a computer or sit in an office my entire life. Um, so I kind of made a last minute change over to a biotechnology degree, which you could probably understand is why it's so why my science background doesn't necessarily have the biggest overlap with Opwall but I, I went to Nottingham University and it was based on the same campus as a bunch of environmental scientists and I was quite a friend with quite a few of them um, and during my second year one of them handed me an Opwall brochure um, and I'd never really done anything like that at all so I, I was quite attracted to the, with the idea to do it and I signed up for a six-week project in Egypt back when Egypt was still running um, and it kind of completely shifted my perspective and 
kind of what I wanted to do because I always with a biotech degree I kind of like I'd set the goal of maybe I'd go into research or something like that or kind of lab-based research directly after university and I think I, I, I was probably on a path to kind of like finish my degree and then go straight onto a PhD and then be stuck in a lab my entire life but much like I decided I didn't want to be stuck in an office my entire life I decided I didn't want to be stuck in a lab my entire life so I, I, I graduated from uni and purely on the basis of the fact that I did Opwall and it was exciting. I'd never really kind of done that before. I kind of decided to go off and traveled quite a lot. So I spent a couple of years backpacking and kind of exploring the world a little bit um, and then got back home and decided to start looking for companies to work for. And um, at the top of my list was was Opwall um, because they'd kind of set me down this path initially. So, and, and weirdly enough, I, I, I grew up in Lincolnshire and for those of you in England that know know the UK, Lincolnshire is it's the middle of nowhere. It's like it's got the second lowest population density in the UK or something like that. Right. Um, and to to find that the Opwell office was like fifteen minutes from where my parents grew up was was was, was a bit weird. Um, so I ended up applying, and yeah, it was yeah ten years ago, eleven years ago now. Um, it and was fate. To, it was fate. I think it was fate as well. So <laughs> it's. I, I I never really intended to go down this path, but I th- I think I'm I'm so grateful and thankful uh, for you know the, the person that handed me the Opwell brochure during my second year of uni because it's basically it's it's that that was the defining moment of my life and you know certainly over the last kind of twelve thirteen years um, and yeah potentially many more as well so a bit <laughs> long answer to a short question I'm sorry but it's a no bit I mean you way. answered about five of my questions in one but I want to take a step back to talk about you traveling the world because you you know humbly described it as just going for a trip around the world for a while but actually obviously you traveled around the world for two years it sounds like some of that was inspired by Opwall what did you learn during that trip? That's a pretty unique experience. And is it something that you would suggest for others who want to discover more about themselves and the world before kind of settling into a career? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And if anybody has the possibility of ever, of doing that kind of thing, you know, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Um, so I spent, uh, just to kind of give you the quick version of it, I spent a couple of years on the road. Um, I, I basically worked at worked a fair amount of time for about six months or so before I left um, and then jumped on a flight to Moscow and did the Trans-Siberian and then went to Asia and Australia and a few other places and stuff like that and it was it was an eye-opening experience um, probably I mean you asked kind of the biggest thing that I learned and probably the biggest thing that I learned is actually probably something which helps with with Opwell as well um, which is if something is going wrong that's not necessarily going to work out badly <laughs> Um, so you know miss a bus and end up staying somewhere exciting for a while and uh you know oh uh you something you can't necessarily get to a place or you know maybe you have to stay somewhere for a little bit longer or you know you basically I, i i kind of learned more than anything else to be able to take everything in my stride um regardless of what was happening up or downs um and i think that kind of that that set me up in the right mentality for for you know working for Opwall and, you know, being able to, uh, you know, think on your feet and feet and respond to things in time and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's an interesting one. I, I mean, I would say everybody needs to kind of get out of, get out of the home and kind of explore as much as they can before they, before they lose the ability to do that. Um, so, you know, for, for me, it was post-university and, you know, I, I did bits and I, you know, thinking back, I did bits like, 
you know voluntourism projects that I regret doing and stuff like that but it was still a, it was still an eye-opening experience for me and I think I came out a, as a stronger person and I think most people would do uh, you know uh, travel appeals to the human spirit quite a lot and you know yeah. I can't I can't rate it highly enough to um, to anybody. So, well, you've managed to make travel and tourism a big part of you know the rest of your career, obviously as well. Working with Opal for the last ten years, and you know you mentioned that you were able to find you know get a job at Opal after coming back from this trip, and it was right down the street from your house, which is amazing because as you said, Lincolnshire is in the middle of, of nowhere in the UK. And you went on then to manage the South Africa site for several years before becoming our Transylvania country manager. So I don't want to go into too much detail on South Africa since we'll cover it on another podcast. But, you know, how big of a change was it to go from South Africa to Romania? I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge change. I mean, as you, as you could probably imagine, you know, purely from an environment, from the environment you're working in, it's completely different. You know, I don't have to worry about elephants or anything like that working in Romania. And it's... So even in the back end, so, so how, how the projects are set up and how the projects are work, work with local partners and things like that, they're two, they're two completely different projects. And, you know, when I started out, when I, when I first moved from South Africa to Romania, I, I had that, you know, I had the thought, well, I'm going to miss my elephants. You know, what am I going to see in Romania? But if you ask me to pick now between the two of them, what would be my favorite, I would, I would struggle to do so because the second I hit, hit the ground in Romania, I just completely fell in love with it, fell in love with the work that we do there, fell in love with the people um, that are involved with the project. Um, but having said that, I do miss seeing elephants every now and again. Well, but. so, you know, now that you are in our Romanian site, in the Transylvanian countryside, could you tell us a little bit more about the site and what the main research questions are there? Yeah, so um, the the project's based in. I mean, we, we kind of interchangeably use the terms Romania and Transylvania a little bit, and we're kind of very guilty across about that across the website and many other places as well. But we basically we work in the Transylvanian region of Romania, um, in a region called the Tanava Mare within Transylvania, um, and. To kind of understand the work, you kind of have to consider Romania as an entity over uh, as a country and how it's developed over the last kind of 10, 15, 20 years, because it's it's a country that has a lot of interesting history behind it a lot of societal shifts a lot of um historical troubles um you know going back so far as uh you know from the 1900s on to you know the modern day there was there's quite a large amount of historical and cultural flux in it particularly because of uh kind of the soviet era um but kind of the, the long and the short of it without getting into too much history is y- you get it's basically the the Transylvania region, which was inherited by the Saxon people, which are, are people of Germanic descent, despite the fact that they're a long way from the Germanic regions. They traditionally um, existed within Transylvania, um, and they, because of what culturally and historically happened over over the last century or so, never really developed Transylvania in line with the rest of Europe. It was an area which was typically impoverished. It was an area which didn't really historically grow. It never went through the agricultural revolution to the extent that, you know, everywhere else did. And so back in the early 90s, um, it was an area which was, it was massively, massively underdeveloped, certainly in comparison to Europe, but even within Romania itself. Um, it would, it's like stepping back in time, which is the, the, the phrase we regularly use for it, but it really, it really has so much truth to it. 
And in the, in the early 90s, the, the Saxon peoples, um, after, after kind of uh, the, uh, the Soviet bloc fell and all the rest of it, the, 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 Romanian, the Saxon people basically got the opportunity to return to Germany, which means the, the majority of the population of Transylvania upped and left. Um, and then it was slow, uh, then the Romanian population slowly kind of filtered back into it. Um, but that kind of brings us up to more modern times in that you've got an area of uh, Romania, which is very, very underdeveloped compared to everywhere else, um, even within Romania, let alone within within Europe. It's still an area where horses and carts are a, a, a common sight. It's an area without much pesticide use. It's an area without much herbicide use. It's an area with very, very basic levels of farming, a lot of subsistence farming. And I mean, like I said, it's like stepping back in time. Um, but things are changing. Romania is modernizing. They became an EU member. There's uh, plenty of money kind of coming into the area, which means that the traditional farming methods which have been in place, I mean, we're talking since the 12th century. You know, this, this is what I mean when I say going back in time. It's like it's the farming methods that have been used for thousands of years. Well, 8,000 years. But that is that is now swiftly being replaced by more modern farming methods. So tractors, herbicides, insecticides, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Um, which is great for the actual populace. It's great for the people on the ground. Um, it means that farming is becoming more efficient and we are humans, which means we like more efficient farming. We like cheaper food for understandable reasons. Um, but the flip of that coin is the fact that because Romania never, because Transylvania never really hit that industrialized agricultural revolution that everywhere else did, it was one of the last few remnants of a kind of a mosaic of habitats which used to spread across the entirety of Europe. Um, there, I mean, over a thousand years of low intensity agriculture spread throughout Europe, throughout England, throughout everywhere else. You know, there were species that, species and populations of animals that kind of grew up alongside humanity. Um, and then we got to the 1900s and decided to rip out all the hedgerows and drain all the marshes and, um, you know, remove wolves and bears and, and basically turn everything into a, one massive, great big monoculture crop. And Transylvania, because of its issues with cultural development and because of its history, never got to that, which means it's stunning in how ancient the landscape is. It's stunning in the fact that it's it was a landscape which is there has to be a human population there for it to for it to exist because it's it's a it's a habitat that that consists of species which almost rely on a certain amount of human influence you remove the humans entirely from the from the situation you're going to revert to forest which is you know fair enough it's not a bad thing but the the diversity levels you get within that kind of low intensity farming area is something that you don't see anywhere else in you anymore so because that's now under risk it, that, because that's now under threat because it one of the last remnants of human history and human agricultural history is disappearing that's where the project is kind of based around so the last thing we want to do is is um kind of prevent the modernization of the area but what you do want to do is prevent the modernization at the cost of the environment so we work with a, with a partner organization called adept and adept are kind of are basically working with the local communities and the local populace to try and basically do things like um like like swap out their income sources um allow them to do kind of uh, uh to, to push them down a more sustainable agricultural route to maintain the the diversity of the area without 
costing the population without forcing them to live in poverty. So it's an interesting fine line. Um, we can't remove humans entirely. We need humans to retain low intensity. You don't want to cost them their livelihoods. So that's where we kind of fit into it. So we work with Adept and our jobs, basically, we go in and we do this kind of rapid um, uh, biodiversity assessment. We go across a bunch of different, pro uh, bunch of different villages within Transylvania, have a look at the meadows, have a look at uh, the diversity of all the different species in the area. And basically we can then use that to prove that this is why this area needs protecting. This is what's happening to the biodiversity here. And then from that, we can use it to gather funding for um, sustainable agriculture methods. We can use it to do a bunch of other stuff as well. So it's basically, it's the data that underpins why we want to protect the area. That's fantastic and such a great description of, you know, how Transylvania works and why it is the way it is, even within a country like Romania. So could you maybe dig a little bit deeper into exactly why these, you know, specific traditional agricultural methods have been so good for biodiversity? Like, why is Romania a place in Europe where you see species that you know, you rarely, rarely or no longer see in the UK or other parts of, of Europe? It's, I mean, it, it comes back to diversity, breeding diversity, really. Uh, I mean, if you have a look at the direct comparisons between, I mean, I mean, sat in Lincolnshire, Lincolnshire is a, is a big farming county within the UK. You know, if I, if I look beyond, you know, if, if I go a mile away from my house, I, I will start hitting fields. And those fields are, you know, dozens of acres wide they've got no breaks in them it's all single monoculture crop um you know every, everything that's not that crop gets killed off very quickly uh, using a combination of uh, usual herbicides and pesticides and all the rest of it and that picture can be copied and pasted across the entirety of Europe pretty much. We like big fields, big fields are easy to farm with. Um, we don't like anything we don't like diversity in our crop fields because it lowers yield. And then you cut, you take that out and then you compare that to, to Romania and Romania, the traditional uh, agricultural methods there. I mean, for a start, you can get rid of the herbicides, the insecticides and that kind of stuff simply because, you know, the people can't afford it, let alone, you know, have the, have the ability to kind of put it on crops. So you have a landscape which is kind of split into multiple different types. Um, so rather than being just one big monoculture, you, you, that landscape is kind of cut into three different type so you do you do get um kind of arable crop fields out there um and you get uh meadows quite predominantly and then you get forests and usually it's changing now but it usually kind of depends on how far away each uh how far you are from the village and um, because usually usually you know you'll, you'll convert crop field you'll you'll make a crop field close to the village because you know if you don't have a tractor to go out to it then you know you're not gonna you know you're gonna try and keep it closer stuff like meadows tend to be a bit further and, and then um, you tend to leave forest where it's uh where um where you can't get a plow basically um so with the uh, meadows and the, and the crop fields. Um, there is rotation as there is in most places. Um, the most defining thing of the area are the, are the meadows. So that with the meadows, you have small populations that are not generally selling to market. You have subsistence agriculture, you do have a little bit of produce going to market, but there's not enough people there and there's not enough for-profit farms that a lot of the land gets left as meadow. Um, and the meadows there are astonishing. And those meadows um, are, you know, they're certainly not monoculture. You get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flower species. You get hundreds and which then in turn support hundreds and hundreds of different insect and butterfly species, which then in turn support hundreds and hundreds of different bird species. Now, 
when they take those uh, when they take those meadows out, they will you know clear an area, turn it into arable land, but you still get a certain amount left over, and um, it will revert to meadow within a couple of years if you leave it to go fallow as well. So the kind of the vast amount of meadows that's out there does retain that high level of diversity and it's usually prevented from uh, from heading over to forest by the fact they do they um graze animals on there um, you graze cows you graze sheep um you you take uh, what was the, the traditional way of doing th- uh, of doing things was every single household maybe had a couple of cows a couple of sheep or something like that they would send them all out uh, in a group to the meadows each day which is awesome to see i'm not going to go into the, the thing behind it but um those those uh, sheep and cows they they you know they will keep the meadow as meadow and stop it from kind of foresting and you know they will eat seeds and deposit those seeds everywhere else as well as 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 sheep and cows are want to do and that kind of combination of things helps keep um you know it help, helps it reverting to forest which helps build the diversity needed for everything else as well that's extremely helpful to understand obviously if you have a you know, miles and miles and miles and miles of one crop. It's very hard for lots of species to live on it. And obviously, I presume those wildflower meadows are very beautiful in the summer when people are visiting that region. They're astonishing. I mean, it's the 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 biggest identifier for i think a lot of people is just the number of butterfly species that people see because you don't see that kind of thing anywhere really um meadows don't exist in the uk really i mean other than in certain kind of areas set aside for conservation um but even the meadows in the uk you don't get the you don't get the diversity of flowers supporting the diversity of butterfly species um so it's yeah it's it's astonishing to see it out there especially when you consider that most of europe and the uk was like that at one point as well right Well, another thing you mentioned earlier was, you know, Europe starting to go towards um, monoculture and removing a lot of the large predators. So one of the things I think a lot of people are usually astonished by in Romania is the amount of bears that are there. Um, So why is Romania such a safe haven for bears? And can you actually see bears? I mean, again, it kind of comes back to history um and the 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 fact that i mean bears have existed in romania for since time immemorial as bears existed through most of europe um since time immemorial but the thing is that as humans like i said we we like to take out forests because if we take out forests and that gives us farmlands you know we like to destroy habitat to make it more useful for for humanity um which is fine humanity but not necessarily great for bear species um so for various kind of historical political societal cultural reasons you know some of them quite negative at least as far as the human population goes um you you had a, a great big expanse of a forest which was you know left not entirely alone but certainly left enough to allow to, to allow a bear population to maintain um not to survive or grow or anything else like that or but maintain you also have other factors involved as well like um like like hunting is always one of those big kind of um uh, points uh, that you know you get a lot of countries that where they did have forests you know they may have had hunts or they may want have wanted they may have gone out and removed the bear population due to their issues with um you know 
uh, you know, human wildlife conflict. And there's so many reasons why bears have disappeared across the entirety of Europe. But most of those have applied in a smaller extent within Romania, Um, even to the point of, you know, having Soviet officials designating forests within Romania as bear hunting grounds and things like that. But the long and the short of it is, is, you know, it's an area which has a large amount of forest, which can still support a bear population because humanity kept its hands off for various reasons, both good and bad. And we see a lot of bears on camera traps there. I, I've seen lots oh, of videos. Yeah. The second half of that question. Yeah, I should say. Um, yeah, so we, we do see bears um, and on the camera traps. Um, they're, one of the, the, they're one of the species that we do catch quite regularly. It's always exciting when you see bears as well on, on camera traps. Um, occasionally see them in person as well. Sadly, I have never, but a lot of that tends to be because I sit in camp running things while, while, while sending people out to go do more interesting things like sea bears. Um, but it's, yeah, so uh, bears are, are common, well, common-ish on camera traps and rarely seen in person as well, but it's always exciting when we do. Fair enough. Well, so what lessons can Europe or other developed regions learn from Transylvania to help you know, improve their biodiversity or protect wildlife. A lot of the lessons that you can take away from Transylvania are, are lessons that European countries are slowly starting to understand and implement more as well, just in the general. I mean, over the last few years, we have had a bit more of an uptick in kind of how environmentally responsible most countries are. But Romania takes that, I mean, this area of Romania takes it to kind of the extreme, but the ability to kind of maintain a mosaic of habitats and is not necessarily completely going to destroy a profit margin, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, Because over the last kind of 100, 150 years, everything has been profit driven. You know, we've been, and well, I say profit driven, more yield driven, Um, but um, you can still get reasonable farming yields and you can still get, you know, a, a decent livelihood even if you use sustainable methods and so on. And that, that's, that's coming to the fore within the areas we work in Romania, because that's, you know, that's what we're trying to push. You know, we're trying to push the ability for, for farmers to be able to exist in a sustainable way without costing their income. So taking, taking that and then transferring it elsewhere in Europe is something that's, you know, it's something that you can definitely learn from. But having said that, I mean, a lot of governments are pushing towards, you know, restoring hedgerows and, you know, um, and creating kind of, like uh, uh, verges and things like that to help try and retain that mosaic but um, or rebuild that mosaic I guess I should right. say. Right well hopefully Europe is heading in that direction obviously we've seen many more efforts towards things like rewilding and going back to traditional agriculture over the last few years so to go back a little bit to your experience obviously working in numerous field sites um around the world what's your favorite part about working in the field and what are some of the biggest challenges you've come across um so i mean i've spent i've spent quite a bit of time in the field (laughs) um so there's there's a few kind of random uh, kind of stories that spring to mind but you know from from my my personal perspective it's not even really kind of an in-field thing. It's more kind of an op-ball thing. So like, like I said, I mean, I have, I have a bit of a science background, although not necessarily the most relatable one to it. Um, but I've worked with, over the last 10 years, I mean, several thousand students have come through camps that I've run. And my favorite part of the trip is, I think, part of, is probably a part of an expedition which most people dislike 
uh, dislike, which is feedback day. I love feedback day. I love sitting down with groups um, and finding how much I've opened eye, or I say I, that's very egotistical, how much the project has opened eyes to the reality of kind of diversity and biology and what life can be like, um, you know, with certain things considered and, you know, basically having people consider things that they never really considered before and having that kind of that mental shift more towards an environmentalism focus or a biology focus and just sitting down with groups and kind of basically chatting to them about that is something that I get a lot of enjoyment from and you know you get some people that you know where, where feedback day is a day to be scared but I, I love it because it's just it's just because the ability to shift the minds of people on site uh, towards the positive or at least what I consider the positive is something that I find I find really enjoyable so that's less of a field thing and more of an op specific thing as far as field things go I mean there's there's, there's a few things out there but it's um yeah I think that's that, that's what I get the most enjoyment out of. What about what about the challenges? Oh, I mean, I don't think any field project in existence over the last, you know, forever has ever gone exactly right. I think anybody that's ever done any field research will relate to the fact that nothing ever goes smoothly. So no, it's it, like it, it, it's part and parcel of what you're doing. Um, you know, you get small issues, you get big issues, um, but nothing is ever insurmountable. Um, so, uh, you know, like it's easy to take for granted things like the the basic nature of living conditions and the fact that some people might struggle with that. You, you also kind of uh, take for granted that occasionally people might twist their ankles, you know, a kilometre from a from a road or that kind of thing or it might rain when it's not supposed to which means you have to kind of cancel surveys and stuff like that like there's plenty of uh plenty of kind of issues and challenges that will will, will go into your average op or field season but you know it's part of the adventure as well i mean like i said before like when i was traveling you know you just like it's um if you get through something it's a story and you can generally walk out on the other side being being positive about whatever's happened so yeah i yeah. can hear from your voice the challenges are part of what draw you as well so um. <laughs> I, well, I, I think I've said I've said to people many times that um, I, I think the most boring season would be one that went perfectly. <laughs> and so, you know, Fair part enough. and parcel of part and parcel of, of of doing this kind of thing is is you know the ability to kind of react. And a lot of these things, like there is so much opportunity in in you know things maybe not necessarily going smoothly that it's not even funny i mean this is this is making i mean i'm making things sound like things go terribly all the time where that couldn't be further from the truth no, um but like it's you know all pole expeditions are are an adventure for for a reason so you know Always. being able to embrace that is part of the fun so well um, what's the coolest or craziest thing you've seen while working out in the field I mean, not to be honest. I mean, there's there's quite a few things out there. I mean, you know, you've got ten years of field stories behind you, and it's like it, it's it's one of those things. Like seeing a pangolin for the first time in South Africa was insanely cool. Um, you know, sitting with wild dogs in in South Africa as well, going out and you know seeing a wildcat in Romania or seeing a glimpse of a wildcat in Romania, but then also kind of comparing that to the time I saw a wildcat in in you know in South Africa. There's uh, it is, is a weird kind of there's, there's quite a few random awesome things that i've seen um the, the, one of the things that actually springs to mind though is actually like uh it, it kind of goes back to wildcats and it's less really something i saw but more kind of something that we kind of discovered um 
so we 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 changed one of our camera trapping methods recently. I say recently, and like like from from one year to another, we we basically used to set camera traps um, in uh, kind of along game trails within Transylvania, to, with the idea that we were going to kind of catch stuff more often if we were putting them on game trails. But we wanted to make the science more robust, um, so we changed a couple of years ago to a grid-based system instead. Um, and one of the things that we found was that we were getting so many more videos of wildcats than before and it kind of comes down that the logic the logical thing to to think about is the fact that maybe they're actually avoiding game trails so we're seeing them more often and you know that's not something or anything like that but it's kind of you know it's it could be as simple as maybe the wildcat population has gone up i don't know i don't know but kind of that the jump in that and kind of having that realization that we're seeing so many more was was quite exciting. So oh, I, cool. I found that I found that particularly cool as well. Might not be the most interesting thing, but you know it's, it's nerdy cool. Know, <laughs> it's nerdy cool, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've seen I've seen bull elephants fighting and stuff like that. No, 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 no. We'll talk about the wildcats on camera instead. That's you know, it's, <laughs> it's on brand. Well, yeah. so what advice do you have for people who are interested in starting a career in conservation or in ecology, or do you even have any advice for your younger self? Um, yeah, it's find a passion. Um, I think it's like, we'll, we'll forget the forget for my younger self um, for now, but we'll talk about kind of the, 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 the advice I've got for everybody that wants wants to get into conservation is basically find something that you are passionate about don't go broad go specific um the best you know i've worked with a lot of people over the last 10 years and the best people that i've ever worked with are the people that are very enthusiastic about a weirdly small topic um that are so enthusiastic and so um so dedicated to one particular field that that enthusiasm shines through them and that is where they get their joy which means that that tends to that joy tends to transmit to everybody else so if you're going into conservation don't go into conservation go into ornithology or herpetology or you know find find a field find a specific and even within those fields you know find you know if you're going to um you know find a species that you are particularly interested in and focus down on that and find find a passion basically find a specific passion and go from there and i, think I like that a long way yeah to end us out on a positive note why do you personally believe we should keep fighting to protect biodiversity and prevent climate change and really what gets you out of bed in the morning <laughs> that's a big question <laughs> no um, wrong answers <laughs> yeah um it's a big question it's a difficult one to answer i mean why why do we fight for biodiversity why do we fight for our planet because we live here um you know humanity has done some terrible things to the planet over the last you know just over the last 100 200 years and i think we have a we have a, a um it's it's something that we have to do as a species is try and undo undo a lot of that damage and that's a very simplistic kind of answer to it but it's you know rolling back the clock on the issue on, on the mistakes that we've made over the last kind of 100 200 years in order to ensure that we can continue to live on the planet that we called home is is a, is a big part of it to me um and you know it's a very fluffy answer i feel like i'd be i could be more specific than that <laughs> i'm not sure that's okay it's just your personal answer i mean we all are working on the same you know, major mission here, I think. And we yeah. all have our reasons for playing our small role. 
in yeah. this global challenge. Yep. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Toby, uh, for telling us all about Transylvania and your work with Opwall. It was a joy to have you on the podcast and have a great rest of your day. No problem at all. Thank you for inviting me. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to Opwall's Field Notes. We hope you were inspired by Toby to travel around the world and maybe even visit Transylvania to see its bears, woodpeckers, and incredible biodiversity. Please do be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on new episodes about conservation and biodiversity hotspots around the world coming soon on Opwall's Field Notes.